Well, good morning, everybody. Um, for those of you that don't know me, my name is Jim Zielinski, and I had the privilege of being on staff here at Ridge Church for about 10 years. Uh, my wife, Diane, and I still attend church here, and we're thrilled to be a part of what God is doing. This morning, Pastor Jonathan asked me if I would be willing to talk to you a little bit about the value of Scripture. And of course, my immediate answer to that was yes, because the scriptures are one of my favorite things. But as I thought about what I wanted to talk to you about this morning, it actually got harder and harder for me to decide. I thought about preaching out of Psalm 119 and verse 105. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. That passage is so beautiful and it shows us how God's word illuminates the way forward for us but I've preached on that passage before here. I also thought about preaching from 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 15, which says, study to show yourself to God as one approved, a worker who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth. Because that passage reminds us that we need to be diligent in our study of the scriptures in order to correctly handle and understand the scriptures. But again, I've preached on that passage before. And then I thought I could preach on 2 Timothy uh, chapter 3 and verses 16 and 17, a passage known by many of us. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for training, teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. I love that passage because it shows how God's word guides and trains us but I've preached on that passage before too. And so then I started thinking about going in a completely different direction altogether. And if you were here last week, you had the opportunity to listen to Pastor Dan preach an amazing sermon as he wrapped up our series on the Lord's Prayer. In that message, he made a great comment which really struck me and I want to reiterate it here this morning. You can't build your relationship with God through someone else's spirituality. Now, I had already been reading and researching and writing and praying about what I was going to speak on this morning. But it struck me that Pastor Dan and I were talking about similar things in relation to prayer and scripture. We as individual believers need to put in the work necessary to read and pray on our own. And then in turn, we need to live that out in community. So this morning, rather than taking the easy road and preach on a well-worn passage of Scripture that everybody knows about when they think about the values of Scripture, instead, I'm going to do something a little bit different. As Christians, we all say that we believe in the value of Scripture. Most of us, if not all of us, would align ourselves with either sola scriptura or prima scriptura. And we're going to talk a little bit more about those later on. But wherever we land on those important doctrines, what is true is that evangelicals is that we hold scripture to be our authority. However, where I believe that our understanding of scriptures and the place that it holds in shaping our theology breaks down is failing to recognize what else shapes our theology whether we want it to or not. 
As much as we might like to think that we can read scripture and form our theology devoid of any human emotion, I believe is simply untrue. As Dan talked about last week, when we go into our quiet place of silence and solitude with God, when we go to read and pray, when we come to the scriptures, we bring everything with us. Our pain, our hurt, our sorrow, our happiness, our joy, our fears, our expectations, and everything else that makes us human. And oftentimes we read that into the text. Who we are shapes how we understand the Bible. Our experiences, our, our understanding of logic and reason, what makes sense to us and what doesn't, and how we view the history of the church all shape our understanding of the scriptures and the theology that comes from it. Now, for some of you, that might sound a little bit crazy, but before you dismiss it, I want you to ask yourself a question. Since the Protestant Reformation, do you know how many Protestant denominations have sprung up in the world? Now, I'm not going to bore you with a lesson on church history, so I'll give you the answer. As of today, right now, there are 9,000 separate Protestant denominations and over 22,000 independent Protestant movements. That means that there are literally thousands of groups of people who read the same Bible as you do and that I do who see things differently. And they hold those differences so dear that they are willing to break from the group and start their own denomination or movement. You see, the older I get, the more and the more that I study human nature and human behavior, the more suspect I get of people who come to me and tell me that there is only one way to look at Scripture or that there is only one way to interpret a particular passage of Scripture. Why? Not because the Scriptures aren't authoritative in the life of the believer. They absolutely are. But because each of us brings with us something a little bit different to the text. And that impacts how we read the text. And now, to make matters worse in our modern society, for the last little while, we've all become increasingly aware of the battle for truth that's going on inside North American culture. We see it both inside and outside the church. Each and every day, we as Christians are bombarded with ideas and thoughts and images and concepts and narratives that are passed off as being true. Pastor Dan last week called these our cultural liturgies. And if you're like me, sometimes it is hard to know what's true and what isn't. And if we're honest with ourselves and with each other, sometimes it's hard to wade through everything that we are bombarded with. And perhaps even harder to deal with is the fact that this bombardment is relentless. It never actually stops. You see, part of this challenge and why I believe it's so important for us to think through what we believe and why we believe it is because of the divisions that we see inside of our culture, both inside and outside of the church. If you're like me, you are likely fascinated to find that many of the people that you talk to aren't just sure about what they believe in. They are absolutely entrenched in their position. 
And so if you disagree with them, you're not just disagreeing with them, you are becoming their enemy. So not only do we need to know what it is that we believe and why we believe it, we have to figure out how to share that in a way that is non-confrontational, not arrogant, and not condescending. Remember the words of Proverbs chapter 15 and verse 1, where the writer says, A gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. Sometimes how you say something is just as important as what you say. So if there was ever a time for us to have a proper understanding of the value of the scripture and for us to understand what that value is, it's now as we try and wade through everything that our culture is throwing at us. We need to be able to know, understand, and apply the scriptures to our daily lives in ways that make us salt and light in the world around us. So this morning, in many ways, what I'm going to be doing, I hope, is teaching more than preaching. My goal this morning is to try and make you think about how you value the scriptures and how you read and understand the scriptures, not to tell you what to think about the scriptures. I'm intentionally not going to use any examples that might be contentious or inflammatory because maybe you and I disagree on some of these things. But I'm almost sure that as I speak this morning, you will be thinking about ideas, topics, um, and other things that might come to your mind. And that's good. That's what we want. You see, sadly, I'm becoming more and more convinced that in our society today, we are lacking critical thinking skills. Not only in society as a, at large, but also in the church. Our entire discourse lately takes place through social media. We have an entire ecosystem that is predicated on rage and misunderstanding and misinterpretation and misdirection. We've lost the ability to think, to reason, to discuss ideas and to support what we believe through rational conversation. Instead, many of us are perpetually offended and we seek to silence anyone and anything that doesn't agree with us. Simply put, we are engaged in significant spiritual warfare today as Christians. And the passage that we're about to look at is going to give us a little bit of advice on how to thrive and succeed in that environment. Again, as we learned last week, our job is not to sit around and whine about the world around us. Our mandate as Christians is to engage, to be salt and light. So if you've got your Bibles this morning, I want you to turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 10, starting at verse 1. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, starting at verse 1. I'm reading this morning from the New Revised Standard Version. I myself, Paul, appeal to you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. I who am humble when face to face with you, but bold towards you when I am away. I ask that when I am present, I need not show boldness by daring to oppose those who think we are acting according to human standards. Indeed, we live as humans, but we do not wage war according to human standards. For the weapons of our warfare are not merely human, but they have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every proud obstacle raised up against the knowledge of God. And we take every thought captive to obey Christ. That last verse is where we want to spend our time this morning. 
We take every thought captive to obey Christ. Well, how do we do that? Well, it starts with understanding what it means to think critically. You see, critical thinking is the intellectually disciplined process of actively and skillfully conceptualizing, applying, analyzing, synthesizing, and or evaluating information gathered from or generated by observation, experience, reflection, reasoning, or communication as a guide to belief and action. Now, I admit that's a little bit of a weighty definition, but let me synthesize it down for you like this. If you want to take every thought captive to obey Christ, you have to put in the work because it requires you to know how to think. You see, I'm convinced that the Christian faith is rational, reasonable, and defensible. The entire discipline of apologetics is based on the reasonableness of Scripture, the value of Scripture. The Apostle Peter reminds us in 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 15, (coughs) excuse me, that we need to make sure in your hearts that Christ is Lord. Always be ready to give an answer to anyone who asks you about the hope that you have. Other translations use the word defense. Always be ready to give a defense for the hope that you have. Now, there's two things that I want you to remember from this passage. First, read what Peter said carefully. Be ready to give an answer, a defense, to anyone who asks. Not anyone and everyone that you feel like. Anyone that asks. If someone asks... They genuinely want to know, which means you have earned the right to speak to them. And second, in order to give a defense, you need to have prepared what that defense will be. And by default, that means that you have to have thought it through. You see, in sports like in war, you have offensive and defensive strategies, which means you have to prepare, you have to think, you have to plan, and then you have to execute when the time comes. The same is true for us when it comes to our approach to the scriptures. If we're going to learn how to take every thought captive, if we're going to learn how to demolish arguments, we have to prepare, we have to think, we have to plan, and then we have to execute. Now, before we get too far down this road, let's just take a few minutes to understand the broader context of the passage that we just looked at in 2 Corinthians. The Apostle Paul is yet again finding it necessary to defend himself and his ministry. And he does this in other letters against those who are undermining and undercutting what he's trying to do. They were leveling all sorts of different accusations against him. So in typical Pauline fashion, he simply dismantles them. That's what the Apostle Paul does. In this case, to the believers at the church of Corinth. But what Paul also does is that he links this back to the spiritual battle that he was facing and that we all face, reminding his readers and us That what we're dealing with here is spiritual in nature, not merely human. Paul also writes in his letter to the Ephesian church in Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 12 that our struggle is not against blood and flesh, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic 
powers of this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So even though that we know that our struggle is spiritual in nature, Paul goes on in verse 4 of our text to tell us that he destroys arguments and every proud obstacle that's raised up against the knowledge of God. As I read this text, I am fairly convinced that the only way to destroy arguments is to take every thought captive. But, and it is a big but, if we aren't able to think critically about what we read, hear, see, and are confronted with each and every day, we will never be able to destroy the arguments that we are confronted with. We have to be able to interpret and understand the scriptures in order to be able to interpret and understand our culture. And just so we are clear, I'm not suggesting to you this morning that I want you or I'm suggesting that you take up the metaphorical sword and become culture warriors in our society today. In fact, I align myself with Paul's writings to the Thessalonian church, where he writes in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verses 11 and 12 that we should aspire to live quietly, to mind our own affairs and to work with our hands as Paul directed his readers so that we may behave properly towards outsiders and be dependent on no one. However, sometimes, again, if we're honest with ourselves, sometimes we know that we have to engage in what we see and hear, which means you need to be able to think deeply, not only about the scriptures, but about our culture and the issues of our time. You see, I think one of the biggest problems that we have in the North American church today is that we're lazy. We don't want to put in the work. We don't want to study. We don't want to read. We don't want to think. We just want someone to tell us what to think. Some of the most closed-minded, bigoted Christians that I know go from sermon to sermon to sermon with someone telling them what they should believe, what they should think, and not once have they ever thought thought, thought it through for themselves. Does it make sense? Is it rational? Is it logical? Does it align with everything that we know of God? All too often, just because a big-name preacher or a big-name author tells us something, we tend to believe it, oftentimes because it already aligns with what we believe about the Scriptures or about the world around us. You see, taking every thought captive, both inside and outside the church, can be difficult because it requires us to stop and think. 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and verse 11 tells us this. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became an adult, I put an end to childish ways. I think one of the problems that we have in the North American church is that we want to remain as spiritual children. My comment this morning is, is that we simply cannot do that. The world around us needs us to engage, but that means that our faith can't be built on what someone else has told us to believe. It has to be built on what we have wrestled with and what we have come to believe because we know it to be true because we have taken those thoughts captive. For those of you that know me, you know that in the many years of pastoral ministry here at Ridge Church, in addition to my administrative duties, Diane, my wife, and I were deeply involved in the ministry to young adults and young couples. 
I read back then and continue to read today that young people are leaving the church. I think most of us uh, understand that. It's widely talked about. Much study has been done on that particular topic. Bigger, fancier, and more expensive programs have been created to try and retain the next generation in the life of the church. But sadly, they have largely not worked. According to the Barner Research Group, the primary reason why young people are leaving the church are, in no particular order, churches are overprotective and demonize everything outside the church, Christianity is shallow and faith is irrelevant, Christianity, and more specifically churches, are anti-science, and the church is unfriendly to those who doubt. <clears throat> Now, of course, there are all sorts of other reasons why people uh, leave the church. I'm not saying that this is an exhaustive list, but for our discussion this morning, these reasons are important for us to understand. The church is overprotective, shallow, anti-science, and unfriendly to those who doubt. You see, I'm fairly convinced that if the church actually embraced the idea that we have to engage in critical thinking when it comes to the scriptures and our culture, if we learned how to take every thought captive because we had wrestled through the issues of our day, we would have answers to these questions when the next generation asks. So I want to encourage you this morning that we don't, that this isn't important for us simply so that we can take every thought captive, so we can build our faith, but so that we can then pass that faith on to the next generation. All right, I've been preaching here for quite a, a while, probably too long already. So in the time that we have left, let's talk about some practical things when it comes to reading, studying, and interpreting the scriptures so we can learn how to take every thought captive in real-world practical terms. What I want to encourage you today, and again, what I'm going to talk about here is not an exhaustive list of what biblical interpretation and the study of Scripture is all about. But what I want to encourage you is, is that these things that we're going to talk about will help you to think deeply about the Scriptures. Some of what I'm going to say you may agree with. Some of what I say you may not agree with. And that's fine. What I want to do is try and hopefully give you a bit of a toolkit for studying the scriptures. But before I do that, I want to read this quote from Billy Graham, the great evangelist of the 20th century, who said this, The Bible has survived attack of every kind. Neither barbaric vandalism nor civilized scholarship has been able to touch it. Neither the burning of the fire nor the laughter of skepticism has accomplished its annihilation. Through the many dark ages of man, its glorious promises have survived unchanged. You see, I believe that it is incumbent upon us as believers to study the Scriptures so that we can know the Scriptures. And then most importantly, so that we can obey the Scriptures. <clears throat> so let's talk a little bit about the Scriptures. Now we all understand that there are men and women who go off to Bible college, they go to seminary, they spend their lives studying the Scripture. And the promises of the Bible are as true as they have been throughout church history as they are today. And that's why it's so important for us to study. So what we're going to talk about is, is some fancy words. And these aren't just fancy words that you can use at community group to impress your friends. They're actually very specific ideas and tools that you can use to study the scripture. The first one that you may have heard before is this whole idea of biblical exegesis. Biblical exegesis is the actual interpretation 
of the Bible and how we as believers can learn to bring out the original meaning of a particular text that we're studying with. Exegesis is what we as evangelicals would consider legitimate interpretation of the scripture because it seeks to read out of the text what the original author or authors meant to convey to the readers. This is critically important to understand. We are trying to understand when we read scripture what the original author was trying to say, not what we want them to say or wish that they said. It's what they're actually trying to say. This is compared to another fancy word that you'll hear about in the study of scripture, which is eisegesis. Eisegesis. Eisegesis is different than exegesis in that exegesis tries to read out of the text what the author was trying to say, where eisegesis reads into the text what the reader wants it to say. It expresses the reader's own subjective ideas, not the actual meaning that was in the text itself. <clears throat> so then the question becomes is, well, how do you actually do? How do you actually engage in biblical exegesis? Well, we use something called hermeneutics. Again, another fancy term. If exegesis is the actual interpretation of the Bible, then hermeneutics is the study and the establishment of the principles by which it is to be interpreted. Now, throughout uh, in the history of biblical interpretations, there are four major types of hermeneutics that have emerged. And I'm going to look at each one of them briefly. The four types are literal, moral, allegorical, and anagogical. Literal, literal interpretation is exactly what you think it is. Literal interpretation asserts that a biblical text is to be interpreted according to the plain meaning conveyed by its grammatical construction and historical context. The literal meaning is held to correspond to the intention of the author. We often hear that spoken about. <clears throat> Moral interpretation seeks to establish exegetical principles by which ethical lessons may be drawn from the various parts of the Bible. Allegorical interpretation interprets the biblical narratives as, ha as having a second level of reference beyond those person, things, or events explicitly mentioned in the text. This is especially true where principal uh, institutions of the Old Testament are seen as types or foreshadowings of persons, events, and objects in the New Testament. And then finally, anagogical or mystical interpretation seeks to explain biblical events as they relate to or prefigure the life to come. Now that was a lot of information, some of it quite technical. And if you were being honest, you may not actually care about it very much. Your mind is filled with work and life and family and your job. And you're probably thinking that the pastor went to Bible college or they went to seminary. So they're going to worry about those things and they'll just tell you what you need to know. I get it. I understand. But I want to encourage you to start thinking about these things because it impacts how you read and understand the scriptures. You see, sometimes people get hung up on one type of hermeneutics over another. They might think that everything is literal or everything is moral or everything is allegorical. 
You see, I'd submit to you this morning that this is not an either-or proposition. It's a both-and proposition because each of these hermeneutical principles exist because the Bible is written in such a way that different passages need to be interpreted in different ways. Okay, so what comes next? What else do you need to think about? Well, there's three other terms that I'd like you to understand. Normative, prescriptive, and descriptive. A passage that is normative is setting a standard, the new normal, while a prescriptive passage lays out what should happen as a result of that new standard. And a descriptive passage is probably what you think it is. It's neither normative nor prescriptive. It is simply describing something that happened at the time that it was written. Again, understanding these concepts is so important for us because the scriptures are made up of narrative sections, poetry, history, prophetic writings, wisdom literature, and letters, and our theology is developed as we read all of them and apply these principles of interpretation that we're talking about now. Thinking about whether or not a passage is prescribing something to us rather than simply describing something to us is an important distinction. Earlier I mentioned two doctrines inside of the evangelical church, prima scriptura and sola scriptura. Prima scriptura is the Christian doctrine that states that the scriptures are first or above all other sources of divine revelation. Prima scriptura suggests that the ways of knowing or understanding God and his will that do not originate from the Bible, from the, the canon of scripture, are perhaps helpful in interpreting the scripture but they are testable by the scripture and corrected by scripture. Prima scriptura is upheld by various traditions within the history of Christianity, which suggests that scripture is the primary source for Christian doctrine, but that tradition, experience, and reason can nurture the Christian religion as long as it is in harmony with scripture itself. Sola Scriptura, on the other hand, means by Scripture alone. Sola Scriptura states that Scriptures are the sole infallible rule of faith and practice, but that those Scriptures can be mediated through many kinds of secondary authority, such as the ordinary teaching offices of the church, church history, church tradition, the councils of the church, reason, and experience. So we don't have time this morning to get bogged down in, the, in all the nuances of Prima Scriptura versus Sola Scriptura, but what I want us to focus on are through the three concepts that are held in common there. They both acknowledge that church tradition, reason, and experience are key components to our understanding of the Scriptures. Both doctrines understand and articulate that Scripture is the ultimate authority. But there are these other elements that we bring with us to our study of the scriptures. And I would submit to you this morning that in many ways, these three things shape our understanding of the scriptures more than we might be willing to admit. Our lives, our upbringing, our understanding of church history, our own conversion experience, our understanding of the culture around us and so many other things come with us when we read and study the Bible. Now some of these things are good as they inform our understanding of God, but sometimes they're not good because they twist 
and distort our understanding of who God is. So let's talk just briefly about each one of them. First, let's talk about church tradition. Why do we study church history? Why does it actually matter? Church history supplies us with a link through 2,000 years of history with Jesus and the apostles. The saints that came before us who were all witness to all that God has done throughout the generations. And that can edify and inspire us. We read stories of justification and sanctification that is part of an unbroken chain that draws us into fellowship with those who have finished the race, those who have fought the fight. And they leave important and valuable assets and insights for us as we read and interpret the scripture. I think that we all understand that church tradition should not and does not replace the scriptures itself. But you certainly could make the argument that we would be doing a disservice to ourselves if we simply dismissed everything that came before us. How about reason? What about reason and logic? Again, although we understand that Scripture is sufficient unto itself and it is the foundation of our faith, we also know without reason and logic we cannot understand the essential truths of Scripture. And we know that those essential truths found in Scripture stand up to scrutiny. As we talked about before, that's the whole reason for the study of apologetics because our faith is a reasonable faith. We all know that reason isn't a mere human invention. It is a gift of God to help us understand the universe that he created. I generally tend to articulate it this way. If God is the creator of the universe, then nothing in the Bible should contradict the order of that universe. If we believe that it does, then I would submit that we are either misunderstanding the scriptures or science or both. Our, our faith must make sense logically and we need to be able to articulate it clearly. I don't believe that we can simply say, well, the Bible says something, so therefore I believe it. That type of faith is simplistic and juvenile. And remember what we talked about before. We don't want to think like a child any longer. We need to learn how to take every thought captive and know why we believe what we believe. We also need to understand that many people outside of the church don't accept the Bible as the ultimate authority. In fact, they probably don't even give the church, the Bible, you or me, a second thought. So while our worldview is informed by the Bible, of course, we need to be able to explain and articulate our thoughts and our opinions about our biblical, our Christian worldview in a way that makes sense to a non-believer who does not have the same foundation of Scripture that we do. However, in order for us to be able to do that, we have to think about and understand what it is that we believe. I love Matthew chapter 10 and verse 16. Here I am sending you out like sheep with wolves all around you. So be as wise as serpents and yet as harmless as doves. But be on your guard against men. 
We need to be wise and know what we believe and why we believe it. But we need to be gentle when we have conversations with those around us because we come, if we come across as angry and arrogant and judgmental, we will have lost the argument, the conversation before we even started. What about experience? For many people, apart from Scripture, experience is the strongest proof of Christianity and one of the best ways for us to take our thoughts captive. What do we know to be true? You see, this is why we share testimonies in the church. We tell the stories of our experiences with Jesus, the church, and with other believers because they inspire us and those around us. Those testimonies become part of our experience and part of the shared experience uh, we have as a church. Last Sunday, we enjoyed some baptisms together and we got the amazing privilege to hear testimonies of two wonderful young women. They were inspiring and they pointed us all towards Jesus as we listened to their stories of new life. What is interesting is that this just doesn't take place in the church. We actually see this all over our culture today. Everyone wants to share their story. They want to be their authentic self. Because you see, I would argue that the cultural architects of our day, the people that are shaping our future, know that it is almost impossible to argue with someone's experience. And if you do, you are automatically labeled as a bigot. John Wesley insisted that we cannot have reasonable assurance of something unless we have experienced it personally. Think of the lyrics of the great old hymn, Amazing Grace. Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found, was blind, but now I see. We cannot argue with his experience. It is profound when thoughts come racing through our minds that we need to take captive, we may not have a Bible verse at the tip of our tongue, but we know what God has done for us through Jesus Christ because we have experienced the power of His unmerited grace in our lives and we can remind ourselves of what is true. Understanding how church tradition, reason, and experience impact our study of the scriptures acknowledges the realities of human behavior while also being pragmatic. How we approach life is impacted by our upbringing, our family of origin, the type of church we went to or go to now, the influence of mentors, leaders, teachers, pastors, and friends in our lives, the way that we were taught the Bible and how to understand it. We bring all of these things with us to the study of scripture and in turn, then, we need to bring the Scripture to our daily lives and the culture around about us. As much as we might like to think that these things happen in a vacuum, they simply do not. We bring everything we are, all of our experiences, our expectations, our hopes, our dreams, our baggage, uh, our damage, the good, the bad, and the ugly of our lives to our reading and the study of the Scriptures. But when we combine that with the other aspects of biblical interpretation, we can begin to know, understand, and apply the scriptures to our daily lives in ways that we have not been able to before. 
The Apostle Paul reminded us to take every thought captive and make it obedient to Christ. But that is impossible to do if we don't think deeply about the Scriptures. My goal this morning has been to encourage you to think, not to tell you what to think, and to give you some ideas that you can think critically about when it comes to the Scriptures. So as we get ready to close, let me leave you with just a couple of other quick quotes from Billy Graham about the value of the Scriptures. He says this, Let the study of the Bible become central in your life, not just so that you will know it, but so that you will obey it. And he said this, The sword of the Spirit, the Bible, is the weapon God has provided for us to use in this battle between truth and deception. Make it a priority to wield that sword skillfully. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for the gift of your Son and the gift of your Word. Father, may we place Scripture above all else in our lives. May we be a people that knows your word, applies your word, and then goes forth with grace and mercy to a world that so desperately needs to know you. Father, I pray that you would equip all of us, quicken all of us to study your word, to know your word, and then to live that out in community here at Ridge Church, and then go forth into the world to be salt and light. Father, we thank you for your goodness in our lives, the gift of grace, and everything that you bless us with. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.